Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. This is webinar number 185, and I've been doing them since the pandemic started. We're hoping that the pandemic is going to be behind us soon, but in the meantime, we continue to do webinars. I am lining up my guests for April. I have Dr. Raquel Butler coming back. I have Laura Plunkett coming back. I'm sure I can get Joyce to come back and talk about something. So we'll keep rolling right on through April. Today, my guest is Diet Hillman, and she is from Day's End Equine Rescue. Um, so welcome, Diet. Thank you so thank much you. for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. So, um, Diet, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you wound up at Day's End Farm. So it's Day's End Farm Horse Rescue, and we are in the central part of Maryland. If you know the map um, of Baltimore and Frederick, we're halfway between there. So we're right in the center of the state. The organization's been in existence, we're in our 32, 32nd year. Um, and the history of the organization goes back to our founders' um, firsthand experience with an equine neglect case and a starvation case. And they were in horses um, for the benefit of their son um, as a therapeutic part of his life. And they had no previous horse experience or knowledge and ended up taking care of and ownership of an emaciated, starved horse. And as animal lovers and passionate welfare uh, at the heart of who they were, they started asking a bunch of questions. How do I fix this horse? How do I help him heal? How do I, you know, um, refeed him and provide the care? So talking to the veterinarians, talking to the farriers, talking to the professionals in the industry. And this is 32 years ago, prior to really rescue being um, a widely available resource for people. Um, so, can you share with us who, who the founders were? Yeah, Kathy and Alan Schwartz. Wow. So it's Kathy Schwartz Howe currently, and Alan Schwartz is in Florida. But yes, so them and their family were just, you know, a local family raising kids, um, loving their animals, and found, had someone suggest to them that their son be um, you, you know, search out a riding facility or equine facility to help their son. And it just literally landed in their lap. And um, I love telling the story because this was not chartered territory. <laughs> there was not anything they ever set out to do. Um, and it came from their heart. It came from their passion and you know, a need was get presented to them and they said, okay, yes, we'll see if we can meet this need for this horse. Well, how do we do that? So who do we need to talk to? And who's gonna give us the information and tell us how to do it? And the, the answers were sometimes there for them and then sometimes they weren't or the answers to their questions were not necessarily <laughs> what they wanted to hear or the right answers. So not only how do we help this horse, but then they said, well, what kind of accountability is um, being given to the owner of this horse that was that failed this horse? What kind of recourse was there? Um, and so they reached out to the local county authorities. And, you know, 32 years ago, equine welfare laws were very um, ineffective when it came to necessarily pressing charges and holding an, an owner criminally accountable. And honestly, the answers to their questions created in them 
the passion to make a difference and make a change and who to talk to, you know, what do we need to do? And they found themselves in relationships to people in the county, whether it be a county agency or a state's attorney's office or an equine expert in the, in the area. And they were instrumental in identifying a need for the animal welfare of Maryland and resourcing what they would need to make a further impact for horses. So, so they were living in Maryland. Were they living in, in Woodbine in the area where- They were living two miles down the road from where we currently are. And this horse came, did he come from the sales or did he, was he- in It was a lesson place? barn. They were, yeah, they were a part of a community barn, a small little lesson barn and the owner abandoned this horse. Yeah, um, you know, and, and that is such a problem because, you know, the people who manage barns or own barns, their boarding is not- how you're ever going to make get rich? It's it's a tough proposition. Hay prices go up, feed prices go up, things go up, and so when someone abandons a horse at a farm, it becomes the 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 responsibility of the barn owner who may not necessarily have the resources to be able to feed and care for yet another horse. You're absolutely right. And and this is this is um, you know, such I don't know that we've done anything about abandoned horses or abandoning horses by owners in those kind of settings. I know back when the market crashed in 2008, it was horrible. People were just turning the horses loose because they could, mm -hmm. and that's a whole, that's a whole nother story and a whole nother thing. But mm -hmm. you know, the situation it sounds like the, this horse was in was that the owner abandoned him and left him in that stable. And then the barn owner supposed to take care of him who has probably limited resources and bad feelings and they picked up the ball. They did. And that and ball, they ran that ball further than fixed than helping that horse. Absolutely. You know, Look we're 32 years, yeah, 32 years later and we're, you know, those of us who are here now have picked up that ball and continue to run it forward and we're looking and we're always looking for the future and and who's going to take the ball and continue it another 32 years. So, um I owe so much to Kathy and Alan personally. Um, the decisions and choices they made with their life gave me my life's work. Um, I'm just personally always grateful um, to their path and how it's afforded me um, an ability to work within my passion and make a be a part of something bigger than me, <laughs> bigger than all of us. Um, that makes an impact, not just on the horse, but on, on human, that human horse connection piece. It, um, I, I want to do the story. So, well, let's talk about you for a moment. Sure. So, so were you a horse crazy girl? Out of diapers. <laughs> <laughs> Never remember a time I have not been obsessed with them. And were and your parents horse people? No, they weren't. They were dairy farmers in Wisconsin. Okay. Um, so livestock were, I come from livestock. <laughs> so I had aunts and uncles that were passionate about horses. So, but my mom and dad specific, no, not horses. Okay. Um, I think I sat on a cow before I sat on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tell um, us about your name because we started and so yeah and my name starts there so um 
Prairie Farm, Wisconsin is this little bitty blurb on the map um, north of Eau Claire, if you're familiar with any part of Wisconsin. So it's a little bitty farming community. And um, the bank that my parents were using when um, prior to I was born, the, the bank teller's name was Diet Frankhauser. That's how they got the name. So little 500, you know, uh, population 500 community, Prairie Farm, Wisconsin was a Diet Frankhauser. I, I wish I could know how she got the name. Yeah. It's, it's a French word that means the summer. And I was born in July, but who knew? Like, you wow. know, <laughs> back in 1968. Um, so it's, uh, I, I'm not French. I'm actually Norwegian and Irish. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a good icebreaker. Um, I didn't appreciate having the name as a kid. I, I wanted to be the Sarahs or the Jills or the, you know, I, I, who wants to be a Diet? It was, it was a hardship, but um, it's, it's, uh, I appreciate my parents. They've always, my parents have always been uh, boundary busters. Um, say they're outside the box. They have always been that way. So yes. So they started with the name. So when did you finally get to ride a horse versus a cow? Gosh, I really super early memories, really super early memories. I would climb on anything. I would crawl up on a, you know, unbridled bareback horse in a field on my, you know, Hillman family farm um, and just go, go for the ride. Um, fearless, reckless, um, just just couldn't, I, I, I was the kid with the posters all over the wall. I was, I was on my hands and knees playing as a horse as a child. I'd wear my knees out on my jeans. Um, you know, any, any time that I had an opportunity to engage with a horse, I always felt like I was meant to be a horse and um, like God got it wrong. Like why am I a human? I really, so it's really hard to, you, you know, you know the, the flavor of this, disease it's <laughs> oh, sure. yeah how do but you explain it to hear you talk about it and uh, wearing out your knees that's awesome yeah 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 it, and the neighbors would look at us weird and think that there was something messed up about the hillman girls um but yeah it was i got my first horse when i was 11 so kudos to my parents for waiting that long um and she was really the first formal educator for me. Um, you know, a, a fearless uh, horse crazy girl at 11. And my mare, she was a Arab Welch cross, ah. Serena. Um, and uh, the lessons she taught me, I'm still appreciating today. And I look back on what I know now and what I understand about horses and equine minds and, and their instincts and psychology and their needs. And I think about the 11 year old girl who just didn't really think outside of my own obsessiveness over her and what this horse was able to do for me and on my behalf and the holes that she filled in my education and knowledge that she supported me in my ignorance or taught me the hard lesson <laughs> set me straight um you know, you know knock me down a few or kept me humble and they still do that horses still do that exactly. yeah. 
So, so, so you grew up in a dairy farm and you finally got a horse and then did you go to college? I did not. I am not college educated, never been a school girl, formal school educator. Um, I have had the blessing of been um, traveling through Europe most of my upbringing. Um, and I feel like I've had a lot of life experiences behind, you know, that I'm educated more in, in life and um, culture and um, experiences that are outside of, you know, a, you know, a particular skill yeah. or, yeah. And so was it horses that took you to Europe or just the, the, my, my family's work took us there and wow. yeah. And I, you know, you got to see the equine side of, of another culture. Yeah. And which is quite different, actually. Very different. Very different. Um, but horses, I, I went through my early childhood. I became a, a mom and I raised my kids. And so there was a good chunk of time where I was really committed to raising my, my two kids and focusing in on that. But horses started trickling back into my life um, in my early 30s. Um, we were living in upstate New York and I had an opportunity to, to dive back in. And um, I was I thought that I would probably just dabble a little bit again. And I ended up. <laughs> yeah, this is dabbling, right? Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> and the timing was right. And ultimately what I understood was that was where I felt the most authentic to myself. Mm. Um, and you know, the who, like the where or, you know, where, whether it's upstate New York or Maryland or Illinois or wherever, or the who, what barn, what facility, what trainer, what, those really didn't matter. Um, I just, I have a core uh, belief that, you know, life is that journey and opportunity, preparedness and opportunity, when they come together, then that, that's what can lead to what, we would classify as success, but I don't even, I'm not looking for success. I just always feel like we're preparing for something. We're always readying ourselves. Or if you're, if you approach life in a way that just says, I don't know why I'm doing this right now, but if it, it appears to be an open door to take advantage of and, and walk through, and I don't need to know the whys or the where's yet, um, but open that door, walk through it. That builds resilience. It does. And that's, you know, like with the pandemic, the thing that comes up for a lot of people is the, is the ability to be resilient, to be able to go with the flow. And, you know, you don't know from one day to the next, this past year has been so topsy-turvy. Really? Um, and you can see people that are, have been willing to kind of let go of having it all prescribed and be yes. able to walk through doors and go with flow. And they're more resilient to what's happening than those that aren't. And that it's not a judgment. It's just you know, someone in a nursing home isn't resilient. My mother, you know, isn't, wasn't resilient because she was old and feeble and in a nursing home. And fortunately she passed before the pandemic. But I think that that's what I hear from you. And it's one of the things we really need in the horses for them to be able to manage in, in our lives is to be resilient when dinner doesn't arrive on time or, you know, they our electric fence yesterday decided to short out where they had to go to get to water and back to hay, and they were all like not happy, but they're that's right. Survived it, right? So you know, stuff. that's right. So all right, so you're in upstate New York. You get back with horses. 
Um, but then how did you journey down to Day's End? Because that's in Maryland. My family relocated for their work. So my, um, my husband at the time, his career moved us to Maryland. Um, and I was working at a local dressage and eventing barn. I was um, a farm manager for them. Shortly after, within weeks of moving to Maryland, I was knocking down doors going, <laughs> hey, I gotta have them there. <laughs> Where, where's an opportunity? And um, it was a border that was there. There was a warm blood mare there um, whose owner had recently passed away in a car accident. And the family did not have the heart to sell her. She was a fourth level dressage mare. Um, uh, and the family never visited. They paid for her board. It was a top-notch facility. There was nothing that she needed that didn't go unmet, but this horse went into a deep depression oh. and with her head in the corner in the back corner of the stall and refused to engage with her, the world around her. Uh, if she was, you know, she was in the field with her, with her pasture mates, um, she was the happiest. But she didn't pace, she didn't weave, she didn't crib, she didn't, she did nothing but press her head into the corner and and withdrawal. She wouldn't eat. Um, and I mean, she just broke my heart. Um and, yeah, I just started asking questions about Greta. And when I understood the story, you know, looking back on it now, perhaps she was mourning. Um yeah, and um she had suffered a deep digital flexor tendon in, in her past that um, she was she was actually sound. She recovered from it. But, I, you know, I looked at it from a physiological standpoint first. I just said, let's let if you're not eating, I want to make sure that you're not also you don't have ulcers and you don't have something going on that's making you uncomfortable that way. And so I just kind of took charge of her care and just spent more time with her, just started, you know, giving her the extra loves and touches that she wasn't getting. Um, and slowly but surely this mare came around and we, I ended up working out a lease agreement with the owners and she taught me so much. Um, I was training under uh, Marjorie Davis, who is a local dressage uh, judge and trainer here. And together Marjorie and Greta and I uh, work together and a border observed this happening and said, Hey, Diet, if you really have a heart for helping horses in this sort of rehabilitative journey, you should check out Days End Farm Horse Rescue. They're just up the street. Um, she was a volunteer for Days End. Well, that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, 2001. Wow. So 20 years. Yeah. Shortly after 9-11, it was, you know, the country was in a complete disarray. Local, the local atmosphere here, we had the, we had the sniper killing people. On oh, the, had, it was just such a turmoil um, time for our country and people were desperate for um, hope and help. So I knocked on the door for day's end as a volunteer saying, you need help mucking stalls or, you know, what do I need to do? How, how can I help? And Kathy, the founder, was the one first person I met. Um, and arms open wide, gate open wide, and um, values, the culture, the from appreciation to core mission was made evident from the start. It's all about the horse. So, it's so now before we leave Greta, did you mm -hmm. continue to ride her? 
I did. And is yes. she, you know, that's 20 years. So is she still with us? I don't know because I, I approached the family to purchase her um, and they declined. So my time with Greta was shorter lived than I would have wanted. Um, I know that the family would never have let anything happen to her. Um, and that I have 100% confidence that her best interests were looked out for. Um, but it was, it was a big, you know, again, I just feel like horses come into your life, mm -hmm. each one with a purpose and, a, and it, you know, I, I've had many horses come and go. Um, and I always want to learn from each one um, or at least be open to what they have to teach me. And Greta really did show to me the depth of a horse, uh, of a horse's connection to their human and that it is important. I, I appreciate that horses need each other more than they need us. <laughs> um, you know, their security and their, their survival is, is really centered in that herd and in that companionship with each other. But their ability as a prey animal to connect with a human, um, to seek you out and willing you give that, I, it's just tremendous. So she was a big, a big educator for me in that. Well, that and I just, you know, horses don't have a frontal lobe the way we do, but that doesn't mean they don't have emotion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you can see anger, you can see curiosity, you can see these things. And grief is something we've had a couple of webinars recently about uh, when it's time to let our friends go and how to give aid mm -hmm. and comfort. And so, you know, the story that I take from your story is the acknowledgement that horses do grieve. And when you have a horse at that level of training, she's clearly had a lot of contact time with her owner and there was yes. a bond. Yes. And probably nobody ever told her what happened. And so even if it's the verbal can't be understood, the intention can be understood. And it's so great that you could come into her life and provide her with that connection again to bring her out of that grieving process. Yes. Um, so so yes. And I'm sure I'm sure in your job, you have horses come in all the time that are in some state of depression or grieving. Just because it's a rescue. They're there because something happened in their life. You know, I see um, the best and worst of humanity here. I also see brokenness in, in different ways. Um, physically, you know, the actual physical side of brokenness, mental brokenness, emotional brokenness. Um, yes. I mean, horses that arrive here are, are they, they're in one of those stages, you know, they're, they're hurt. They can be hurting physically. They can hurt, be hurting emotionally, mentally. Um, yes, you see it. And then you see the transformation. Yeah. So yeah, it's, that's what I mean by what an incredible job. I, this career, this position, this ability to uh, opportunity to be here is just beyond anything that I would have ever have dreamed for myself. And um, every day I'm grateful for it. So you came in as a volunteer after 9-11. Yeah. And how long before it transitioned into uh, actual position? Three years. Um, 
I was still raising kids. I was able, the, the volunteer part of this afforded me the ability to have horses in my life without the level of commitment that a career or a job had. And that was a gift to me. And it's a gift I see happening down here every day. Um, the Days End Farm is an entry point for people. You don't have to have horse knowledge and experience to come and get hands-on and learn and be a part of these animals' lives. And you know, I came into it with years of horse experience and lifetime of horse experience, and I still learned and gained so much. And the opportunity was there whenever I needed it, could have it, afforded it, whatever. And it still is that way today. And so I, I worked as a volunteer trainer for the organization for three years um, and brought up a volunteer training team and worked more on helping these horses transition from rehabilitation into adoption by maybe filling in some of their holes training wise or, but it was really more about educating more people. It was about looking around and saying, who's here with me? Let's go learn together and let's learn what the horse has to teach us. And then let's, um, you know, help them find their next human. So in my work with both the horses and the people, uh, the volunteer coordinator position came available. We were bringing in 1100 volunteers a year at that point. Wow. <sighs> yes. And again, entry point. So you're 10 year old to your 90 year old coming in saying, I want to help. Um, and so the level of care and um, management that they needed um, and so Kathy approached me and asked if I'd be interested in the position. So I became a volunteer coordinator for them in 2006. And I um, stayed in that role uh, till 2009. And then my family, um, my husband at the time, his career moved us again. <laughs> and again, now let's think about opening doors and well, let's do life curveballs or yeah, you think you're on one path and you got a 90 degree turn ahead. Um, so I moved, we moved to central Illinois, the Bloomington normal area. If you're familiar with yep. that area, it's south of Chicago. And I think that we have someone from Chicago here with us today. Um, so Bloomington normal um, was where I landed. And I, that was a really hard period in my life. I really did believe that my life was on a specific path. Days End Farm Horse Rescue, um, uh, I adopted a horse in the meantime, we'll talk more about River in a minute, but I, I honestly, I, I was lost. Um, and we've already said it, Wendy, you know, being teachable and being open and being prepared when, yeah, when the light, when COVID hits or when life throws a curveball, and your securities appears to be gone, like it's no longer around or what you thought was happening in your life or what, what maybe you were hoping for or anticipating doesn't happen. And you have that level of disappointment and fear and anxiety. What is it that you're landing on? Like, what is it that's sustaining you? What is it that you're going back to? And for me, I had to go back to the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't see, but I, all I know is, I need to stay diligent to what is important to me, which is equine welfare at that point. So I cast the net out there for central Illinois and said, where's the need? Where, wh where's the need that I can help? Where, who, who need, you know, who's doing this in central Illinois? And my search led to zero. Um, there wasn't a rescue that was either within a driving distance or that was run or managed in a way that I felt was 
um, where I would felt confident going um, and contributing my time. Uh, so I felt like a bunch of doors that were closing on me. So I said, well, what else is there for equine welfare? <laughs> well, how about an equine um, investigator for the state of Illinois? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I'm super familiar with it because Days End Farm Horse Rescue, I'm uh, just quick sidebar, that's what we do. We only work with county agencies for the seizure and impoundment of horses suffering from abuse and neglect. We work with non with uh, law enforcement. And so I had already been familiar with the process from a volunteer and a staff standpoint. I understood the investigation and the animal control and the humane officers and, and, and things like that from, and I'd been a part of a team that was, when we would be deployed out to uh, help counties seize horses, then, I, so I had the experience. So I said, okay, well, this fits. It, it, it's not completely off in left field. Um, and it is a way that I could maybe make an impact or stay, stay on the path that I, that I felt I was on. So I, I, I sat for the test and, and was a equine humane investigator for the state of Illinois. So, so, I mean, there's so many questions. <laughs> yes. So much fun. But um, A, you, to be an investigator, you don't have to be a police officer. At least in the state of Illinois. Everyone's different. Every state's different. County's different. They're all different requirements. Correct. So where you were, there, you didn't have to be a, a, a police officer. You nope. just had to sit a test. Correct. And you had to be under the umbrella of a nonprofit, animal welfare nonprofit. So uh, you had to find one. Correct. Which was the Humane Society of Central Illinois. Oh, perfect. Okay. So, <laughs> yes, it was... Actually, um, a, fe a fellow equestrian that I'd met, she served on the board of this organization and she's like, Dia, you really should look into this. You should check this out. Um, and so it was her nudge that opened that door for me. And I went, okay, well, I really don't want to be an equine humane investigator. Not like genuinely, truly, Wendy. I'm like, this is not really no, what I want to be. The, you know, the belly of the barrel, right? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just like, oh. Well, it fits, but is that really what I want to do? No, but is this really what I think I should do? Yes. So, so again, walk, walk through that door. Okay. So you take the test, you're working under the auspices of the Humane Society. Your friend encouraged you to take this job, which is how you found out about it. And so yeah. here you are investigating <laughs> reports of neglect and abuse. Yes. And now those, so how is, just to be clear, how is a neglect or an abuse case, what's, what's the, the funnel? What, someone yep. makes a phone call to yes. animal control? It is, re it's a reach. It is a phone call. It's an email. It's showing up at the door of, of a humane agency that's, every state, county jurisdiction is different. It could be the sheriff's department. It could be your local police. It could be the state police. It could be the animal control facility, the humane agency, like a humane society. Um, but every community has one specific um, entity that's, that's contracted or required by the law to uphold animal welfare laws in, your, in, in that state or community. And so, I teach this all the time 
um, and encourage people to look it up locally. Who would you call if you're driving past a property that you have concerns of treatment for the horses or care? Who do you know that you could call? So find that out for yourself. Um, Sounds like we need a whole webinar just on that. We could easily, we could, I, I teach. Okay. All right. So because yes. this is about, let's hold that one and I'll have <laughs> you back and we can talk about that because it is an important topic. And, and I will say that there are the times when the horse is sleeping in the field and he's totally fine, but everybody sees what appears to be a dead. We get those calls all the time. Yes. So, so there is that side of it, which yes. is, but also creates a lot of work. Um, yes. Sure. You have yes. To investigate a phone call. Hey, but, I would rather you call than yeah. not saying yes, absolutely. All Thank right. you. So let's hold that for another webinar and let's kind of yes. so you have this job and you're in Illinois. Yeah. Now you're at Days End. So how did you get back? Yeah. So that same friend of mine um, who encouraged me to look into being a humane investigator, she and I were doing calls together. She's kind of training me up and helping me along. And she served on the board of the Humane Society of Central Illinois, who had been without a manager and a director for three years. And she said, you know what, Diet? <laughs> I think you might, I think you should look into this position. <laughs> I was like, um, that's dogs, cats, small animal. That's a full humane society. I'm like, you know, thanks, Kim, for the vote of confidence, but big job. <laughs> so I I took some time to think about it. And I, again, if I stay true to what I believe, there's an open door yet. why not? And I honestly said, if, if I said no to this opportunity, I would wake up tomorrow and ask what if, mm -hmm. and wake up the next day and wonder. And I didn't want to do that to myself. <laughs> so I applied, I interviewed, they offered me the job. And so I went, I, that was my training ground. And when I look back on it, that was my biggest, from a professional standpoint, where I needed to learn the most to prepare me for where I am today. So I learned about managing a nonprofit business, staffing, um, uh, working with veterinarians for the care and well being of the animals being brought into our shelter. Um, however, the, the piece that has lent me the most and, and prepared me the most was we had a team of investigators working underneath us. So I was a an investigator. Now I'm the head of the investigation team. And as the shelter manager, I was responsible for fielding all of the incoming calls for dogs, cats, birds, wildlife, you name it. And then I was managing the investigators and the cases that they were on. I had opportunity to work with the state's attorney's office um, in animal cruelty and criminal cases. Never done that before. Um, having important meetings with local authorities for laws and processes and prosecutions and dealing with um, forensic evidence and um, you know all the, the pieces of investigation and reporting and documentation in in addition to running the shelter. <laughs> wow. So it was it was the hardest job I've ever held, bar none. I, I can't remember how many people did you have under you? Oh goodness. I think we were like 17. Um 
it had a tremendous board of directors. I was not alone. Um, a board of directors that loved and cared for the organization and continue to this day. Um, but I had to grow some really tough skin. Yeah. I, I had to learn how to be hated and disliked. <laughs> I had to learn what it was like to have, you know, a finger of judgment pointed in your face um, and, you know, reputation on the line. I had to learn to defend my staff and to defend our, our policies and our decisions. And I had to learn to defend the animals. I needed- Well, you I, become a public entity, essentially. And you're yes. a person for scrutiny, criticism, yep. some praise. <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. mostly in-house everybody in-house were like yeah high-fiving and helping and hugging but well, yeah because, the public interface it was a tough tough job yeah. and um you know I don't know that but most people okay so I'm going to use an analogy over the past four years I've learned more about how our government runs than I've ever known about how our government runs but it's because we had to could have shine the light on how things work but for the most part, people don't know the behind the scenes. And for the most part, as long as everything's working, they don't care. But when yes. something is affecting them, then what happens is they don't know how it works, but they, their emotions get involved. Yes. And then that's where the fingers start pointing. That's right. And so, you know, um, tough, tough job. It, it is. And to your point, because here's what I think I hear you saying, it, it's perception. It's yeah. perce and perception is reality. So it, it's not even that you're incorrect. It's just, I can see, I can appreciate that from your vantage point and viewpoint, you think that this is what is fact or true. So if, as long as there's an opportunity and an open-mindedness and a teachableness to discuss and have conversations and and be provided more context and more information so your perception can change, then your, then your opinion can change or your yes, or your responses can change. And, you know, I, I was sadly only in that job a year and I started looking for a way out. Uh, it was, it beat me up. And I, I stuck to the commitment that I knew I needed to be there for a reason. Um, the hardest job, I had a tremendous amount of support around me that helped me and aided me get through. But I, I did have an awareness that this, this was a training ground and this was a boot camp. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know what I, what I lean on more than anything now is the lesson that I learned looking into an animal's eyes and looking at their needs first. And, you know, put, Put the blinders on or the, look at the animal's needs, psych, you know, physical needs, emotional needs. Um, and you're going to have a variety of people that have an opinion, even a professional opinion and assessment on what the animal need needs to be. But in the end, it was my duty and responsibility on behalf of that animal to make the right to make the right decision. And that is what comes under scrutiny. That is what comes under judgment. That's that. And. Um, you know, that could literally be an end of life decision. Right. Um, you know, a lot of conversation with veterinarians and, and professional dog trainers and cat psychiatrists and all these things. And 
I wanted to champion for the animal. Um, I wanted to say this, this dog or this cat or, you know, this horse needs this resource and able to, to move on or to be able to provide the help that they need. Or, you know, I cannot in good faith put this animal in a home knowing that there's always, that there's going to be a chance of risk that a human can be harmed by it. And I had animal control in the community. I'm going to call her out. I don't know if she'll ever watch this program, but Marshall Thomas um, was the director and is the director of McLean County um, Animal Control. And she became a friend and a mentor and a guide for me to navigate what I could classify as a traumatic <laughs> part of my job. And her support and her backing and her experience really did propel me further in a very short period of time. I was only in the, I was only there three years, Wendy, before I came back. <laughs> but that was, man, talk about boot camp. Right. So it was a life change for me that happened. Um, my marriage was dissolving. Um, and from a personal standpoint, my life was, I knew where my life was going. And a phone call from my now, our CEO, current CEO, Aaron Ochoa, um, came in and said, Diet, we need you. Would you be willing to come back? <laughs> so wow. that was in 2013. Um, now, did they know what you were doing or going through at the time? To, in some measure, I always stayed in touch with Aaron um, and my my and the staff here they they knew my work they knew what i was doing um they knew my heart and they knew my passion for day's end when i left you know it was it was a hard leaving um day's end and aaron and i would communicate even over the years just to say my heart's still there um the work that that day's end does is goes right to the core of who i am I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know what it will look like, but she knew enough <laughs> to be confident making that phone call. <laughs> and so after three years you return, it probably felt like coming home. It did in so, so many ways. So what position did you come back to? It's the equine programs director. So it's directly involved with our animal control and humane agencies in the state of Maryland who have the jurisdiction and requirement to uphold the animal welfare laws. Um, I am the liaison between Days End Farm and those agencies. And it goes beyond Maryland. We, we support and help Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, Delaware. We've assisted- yeah, Because there's so many states, if anybody knows the geography, there's so many yeah. states Maryland is small and there's a lot of connecting states. So, so this brings me to a question that I wanted to ask earlier. What is the mission statement of Day's End? To, to, um... <laughs> you, on the spot now. you are, seriously, I feel like I'm on the witness stand. <laughs> it's community outreach and it's ensuring that uh, equine quality and care through outreach and community outreach education and rehabilitation. And so we have only a small footprint here in Maryland. We have less than 60 acres in total. Wow. And we appreciate that we can 
impact more horses outside of our fence lines through education and community outreach. So the core mission and um, state, you know, and vision for Day's End is continuing to support the animal welfare agencies um, with impoundment, rehabilitation, criminal support, all the way through trial, court witness, all of that. But it's about getting in and creating more equine welfare-minded community that's going to make the bigger impact. Okay, so let me see if I, I understand this. Um, Days End Farm is a 60-acre facility. Mm -hmm. How many horses at a time, roughly, do you have in site, on site? Between 70 and 90. And is that pretty much your max, 90 horses? Yeah. I mean, is there, you know, populations fluctuate, right? Yes. At any given time in any kind of economic mindset, mm -hmm. populations fluctuate. But there's, you know, most facilities do tend to have a limit on what they can handle on their facility in terms of volunteers, right. you know, income coming in, feed, et cetera, et cetera. And as a nonprofit, I assume that most of your operating expense comes from donations. It is. We are 100% donor funded. Right. So, you know, that's a lot of mouths to feed. It is sure is. Facilitate and, and try to move. So, so I would think that the, the actual facilities function, if I have this right, is to bring in these horses and rehabilitate them and then find them a new home. Absolutely. And what happens if they are, can't be rehabilitated or if there's some, something that doesn't make them serviceable enough to be rehomed? Yes, so we do have uh, a euthanasia end of life um, policy. Um, it is, it's all about the individual horse, uh, understanding and respecting that um, there are certain standards in which we need to sustain and maintain. Um, for me and for us, it's quality of life. Um, and to me, to day's end, that means a horse living the life that was intended to live, which is in a herd environment with other horses, um, in a pasture, you know, stall kept, yes, but you know, the ability to be out in a pasture with herds without pain, without, with, without discomfort. Well, this ties in so well to the, uh, uh, so I had a webinar with Dr. Joyce Harmon on end of life. And I had a webinar with, Dr., uh, with Laura Plunkett last week on aid and comfort. And the thing that came out of Laura's webinar um, that was so important is that horses don't, they, and we know horses don't tolerate pain well. So if the choice is to live in pain or to be yes. recognized, yes you know, that's a decision. And they don't see death as I, as I believe the way we do. Um, I've had horses pass. I, I told the story of Fanny who she had bacterial enteritis, fell out of the trailer on the side of the road and died on the side of the road. It was pretty dramatic. And when I had some, an animal communicator talk to her, her first concern was my landlord. Oh, <laughs> because I had cut down some trees and my landlord was upset because the house was molding because there were too many. And that was so, you know, I mean, whether you believe in that or not, for yes. me, it was so healing to hear that her concern was for me, not for the fact that she, she said, I'd been thinking about it for a while. You know, it was this whole story. So they, mm -hmm. they, in, from my understanding, from my personal belief, they don't see death the way they do, but they do see living in pain as not, a live a life that that is a 
sort of a worse thing for them to be in chronic pain um, if there's nothing we can do about it. So uh, the ability to make the right decision has to look at the welfare of the individual, which it sounds like you've got incredible experience being able to make that decision because you're going to get horses, let's face it, you're going to get horses that are not gonna be able to be rehabilitated, that are yes. too far. Yes. Um, and so the fact that you have the ability to make the right decision for the horse mm -hmm. is, is extremely important. It's such a value. Um, it's, a, it's a journey that I have had supported by the horses over my career. They, they support, and I, I respect exactly what you've said so far, Wendy, that I believe it as well. Um, I believe that, yes, that they have an understanding of death. I think they, they have an understanding of loss and mourning, um, but they handle it incredibly well. <laughs> way better and than we do. <laughs> way better. They, again, they're the, yeah, learn, learn from them, uh, follow their, follow their lead. Um, I've seen it over and over and over again. And, you know, each horse is different from, from how they can cope. Um, I do know that too. You have some horses that can manage and cope at a better, higher level and others that can't. And, you know, there's been opportunities where a horse's inability to cope with the loss of their best friend leads them to a reduced quality of life themselves and living in a mental state that causes too much harm or too much trauma. Um, and uh, yeah, so each and every animal brings brings me to a greater appreciation and understanding of of, uh, of the importance and values of life or just you know really what what is most important i the number one lesson i learn is just live the day today now moment this moment what's what's important now I, we have um we've had literally 40 horses arrive and one go and, and they're all body condition scores, ones and twos. And our barn is packed full of sick horses that are not drinking, not pooping, um, laying down and can't get up and have to be picked up and slung, you know, put in a sling, um, getting their temperatures taken three or four times a day. Um, so weakened that they're, that they're completely disconnected from the world around them, just consumed with, um, with, the pain and suffering, or even just the lack of the energy to be connected to their world, um, just really down sick. Um, and we as human beings, our heart immediately goes out to them. It's, it's sympathy, it's empathy, it's compassion, it's help and fix and save. And, and that's all good. <laughs> that's really all good. But our, our human minds have the, have the tendency and the the um, unfortunate side effect to where we we attach that experience and that horse's life to that point to them permanently. Like we always see them as the victim. Yeah, we, we say yeah. you were, yep, you spent six months or six weeks in a sling, almost dying. And you know, that skinny sick um, horse then is you now. And we treat them as if they continue to be uh, suffering that degree of neglect. Horses that are physically hurt by human beings, the trauma, or like, like a, 
the fear and distrust and protectiveness that they come, you know, man, those really go deep to our hearts. But we as humans will always see them as that down, you know, beaten down, trodden victim. Um, and I encourage our, and, and our volunteers, they're here because they want to help. They want to be a part of their change and their experience, the journey of the horse. Um, we can't do it without them, but we, we become, sometimes we can get in the way of the horse's progress by, by associating their past with their present. You know, this brings up, it's such an interesting point to hear you talk about it from that perspective, because the perspective I'm used to is I, I tell the story of the butthead that I walked into this OTTB rehab center and there was this horse who was so, so fussy. I wanted to do this surefoot demo and I had 15 minutes and the woman didn't want to give me that horse because he was a butthead and that's exactly the horse I wanted. And I put his foot on the pad and in 10 seconds, all the butthead behavior stopped and we trap them yes. in, in our projection of whether they're a rescue horse or a butthead mm -hmm. or a yep. problem horse or whatever. And we, and that's one of the things I love about Surefoot is that it can show you, this is not the case. This is not what is really going on, but we have to be willing to let it go because the trainer was not there and she was not willing to let it go. And so the horse remained a butthead, even though there was a door. And so, so, oh yeah, that's fascinating. We get, yeah, we literally get in the way. We block the horse's potential. We block their ability to change based on our own judgment or our perception of them. Um, we have a rule here. You don't judge horses. You don't label them. If we hear someone calling a horse a butt, they could be behaving like a butthead in the moment, but for you to take that and, and actually place that as a judgment and as a Descript, you know, that that becomes an identity to them. You know, I mean, it's, it can be hard because you can say, well, that horse is a biter and that's information that needs to be shared. Like, yep, please use caution around that horse. He bites, but he's not, does that mean he's a biter or he bites? And so that's the way he is now wired to protect so correct. one of my favorite statements that um, I cannot take credit for and I've forgotten is when we have trauma, our nervous system is wired for connection, but with trauma, it's wired for protection. And when we mm. see people protecting themselves and we judge them for the behavior and not the fact that they have been rewired due to a trauma, and it's yes. all about the vagal nerves. So we could, you and I, having never met each other, could go on <laughs> for hours. <laughs> Oh, I know. That's just, uh, this is so my thing. Oh my God. Yeah. It's really fun to talk about it. Cause I, te I, I teach and preach that horses know your intention. Yes. And, and we as a human being cannot have a thought and an intention in our mind without it physically changing our body in some way. And we are not experts at reading each other in that way. We are not body. We, we communicate verbally. Yeah. You know, we have physical sides of expression, a part of our communication, but Horses are expert at body language and, and our body's response to our own thoughts and feelings and emotions and intentions are just like glaring at that there, which is again, learn from them. What is it? So, um, I have to ask you a question. Yeah. Are you familiar with Sharon Wilsey's work, Horse Speak? I'm not. Okay. I'm sending you a book. Okay. <laughs> I'm sending you a book and I'm, and I'm going to give you, I'm sorry where everybody watching, I'm going off topic. Um, <laughs> Sharon Wilsey has been able to codify internal herd language, in other words, subtle herd language, uh, 
of how horses communicate and she's decoded it and encoded it so that we as humans can talk to horses in think of it as braille yes braille. yes okay? yes uh, and i've done 10 webinars with her you are going to love her because uh we have to figure out a way I'm plotting and planning that she could come and train, teach, do a workshop to teach your volunteers. Because when one understands how to, and what happens is horses can lose that communication, right? If a horse has been isolated mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. something, he can lose it, but they can learn to speak again, if you will, in horse language. And I'm sure that you already see and observe this in terms of as a horse starts to recover, how they interact with other horses. Some have very fluent and easy interactions and others kind of act like they're, um, yes, uh, you know, um, not dumb as- Antisocial, yeah, they have no skills that, yeah, I'm totally, like, yep. Like a foreign language, like, I don't know what you just said to me, so now I'm gonna do something that's really stupid and get in trouble for it, right? <laughs> um, okay, so we have to get back to Jason end because that's what we're supposed no, to- No, that's totally fine. I, you know, the first, the full circle moment, Wendy, would be, um, again, learning from the horse and the, their physical healing and mental healing and how we as humans can be, man, a, a help and an aid to them. And a, just a reminder to just get out of their way and um, allow them allow them the opportunity to, they, they live, here's the moment, it's, it's now. I, we had a horse, here's a case study or at least a little history. Um, Washington County, Maryland is on the Western side of our state. There was a, uh, the police were called to a residence for a domestic dispute. And in the course of the call, they saw that there were pigeons, pet pigeons in the house. And so per their um, protocol, they called animal control and asked them to check on the conditions and well-being of the pigeons. Animal control knocks on the door and the officer, bragging moment, the officer on call is, was actually a former staff member of Day's End. So she's very, so she's a horse person too. She's um, a horse professional, but she um, checked and the pigeons were of, you know, acceptable condition, but she asked, are there any other animals? Um, do you own any other animals that I should see? And the owner's like, no. Well, yes, I have other animals, but no, you don't need to see them. And she said, well, actually, yes, I do. So she walked around the property and turned the corner and what met her eyes was something that literally the world has not seen. There was a, young, a small pony um, who had been a stallion that they locked in the barn, which they confessed to be at least 13, 14, 15 years and had never had his feet trimmed. He was living on four and a half feet high of manure and hay and dirt and dust. The, the typical cattle panels that you use for partitioning um, livestock, the, his, his environment was above the cattle panels. Um, and he, his feet were um, three and a half feet long, coiled and curled. Um, and we named him Quest. So there's actually a dodo video that goes around that, that shows his transformation. But uh, another pony, uh, Rio, similar, had severely neglected feet and he was a miniature. And then there was a mare with them. Um, um, we named her Piper. Unfortunately, she, we, we had to euthanize her on the scene, um, but she had the same um, 
hoof neglect where her feet were really tightly connected, coiled, um, almost like a telephone cord. If you would, if you would um, stretch out a cord, that's, that's how tightly corkscrewed her feet were. Um, when we, we had to cut their feet off on the scene to be able to put them on the trailer, the horses couldn't walk. Um, unfortunately, when Piper stood up, she um, suffered a dislocate, a complete dislocation of one of her fetlock joints due to the, due to the condition. So she was unfortunately unable to save, but Quest went on. He's, he's a dressage pony, a trick pony. Um, he, this was a horse that was segregated from other horses for 15 years of his life, had no human interaction touch, um, and suffered significant pain and suffering from having when we weighed his feet when they were all cut off um, and they weighed, I believe they weighed like 40 pounds. So he carried 40 pounds of extra weight on his feet. And again, he was a horse that people wanted to continue to, when they look at him, they think of the years of neglect and abuse that he suffered, but he showed, he's like, no, it's today. And today my life is different. And today this is what matters to me. Um, and the transformation he made was just amazing. We, we didn't, we had no expectation, um, we had hope, but um, working with the professionals in our industry as well, we have a veterinarian practice that's been with us from the beginning. They have taken this journey with us. They've been a part of establishing protocols and our SOPs, our refeeding program, our treatment program. Um, and they, bless their hearts, they go into court as witness for prosecution on behalf of their own information and um, professional support of the criminal case. But I mean, it really, it, our farriers, our, our veterinarians, our trainers, the community of trainers that we have, um, we have two professional trainers, we have two of our own professional trainers as staff, but then we, we have built connections and relationships with trainers in the industry. So, you know, it's all about sharing the journey that these horses are on together. Um, that's just been a remarkable experience. Well, I, I could talk to you for a very long time um, <laughs> about, about a wide variety of things. But um, so, so let me just kind of recap here and see if I have it right. Um, because Days End Farm is, is more and not what I expected. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, there are rehab places where you know, horses have been neglected and they go to a rehab facility. And I think of them more as retirement homes, I guess. Mm. And maybe that's my idea. Sure, yes. Um, but basically, Jay's End specifically is working with law enforcement to, yes. and so you don't like, somebody can't just send their horse to you for retirement or anything like that. It comes through the legal system. It's Correct. a or abuse case you work with the local authorities, actually more the regional and state authorities. You, you, you actually go to these cases and do on-site treatment to the animals as required to be able to then transport, if possible, back to your facility where right. they then go through a process of evaluation and rehabilitation and recovery and then rehoming. You are so good, yes. <laughs> And then along that way, how, what is the, and I, this is kind of a random number, I'm sure, but what is the average length of time from rescue to rehoming? 10 months. And so you support 70 to 90 horses yes. for 
10 months. Correct. Including training. Correct. So that when they go to a new home, and I'm sure you follow them up. Yes. You have a whole staff that just does follow-ups. It's a part of our adoption program that we have trainers and support staff that the whole training, adoption, follow-up, ongoing through the rest of their life is all part of our team. Yep. Yeah, Yeah, because you certainly wouldn't want the horses to fall into a bad environment again. The safety net. Yep. We have safety net in place. Yep. Things happen to people and... um, you know, life is, life is never what we always think, you know, what we think it's going to be. Circumstances change. So there's Correct. always a, a fallback. Should the owner not be able to maintain that horse? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's How always, it's about the horse. Through day's end and been rehomed. Oh, you know, I, we get asked that question occasionally and it's, it's hard to know because let's go back 32 years and I know record keeping um, we're probably in the three to 4,000 range. We, so we, we have a statistic that we track, which is the total horses of number sheltered per year, which means intake and adoption and, you know, it's ebb and flow. So we average between 120 to 150 horses sheltered a year. And that's a pretty big swing. 30 horses is a lot of horses to yeah, it is. But I mean, we, this past year, we had 17 horses in December. No, I misspoke. We have, we had 21 horses in December and an additional 19 only four weeks later. So sometimes we just get slammed and then sometimes we, they trickle in maybe two or three at a time. Right. But it sounds, you know, like when, when they go into a sale, a horse property and there's 40 horses, you could wind up with 40 horses in one fell swoop. We could. And if what we can't, Wendy, what we, what are, what's beyond our capacity and resources from a physical standpoint, we have resources from a community standpoint. It is not all about, it's not day's ends farm. It's, it's right. It's connection and working with other organizations and our community to get the needs of the county and the horses met. So how many facilities around the country are there like day's end? Is there one in the state? No, no. Um, Specific to law enforcement support. Yes. The volunteering program that we've got, the education, which we haven't even tapped into yet, Wendy. Um, the there's there's probably three or four that I'm aware of in the states um, that are similar um, in mission and purpose and and stature. Um, but that being said. Let's go back to Kathy and Alan, the founders. Again, they didn't roadmap this. Uh, Alan was here. Uh, we had him. Uh, we brought him back from Florida to be a guest speaker for our 30th anniversary. In his own words, he said they would never ever envisioned Days End to be this. Never in a million years. They just literally just met needs as they were coming to the door, and you know there was a knock on their door saying, "Can you help?" or "Can you?" and and that would be, "Can you help train our officers?" They don't know what horse care looks like. They don't know what neglect looks like. Um, animal control officers in Maryland don't require any training or um, education to be an officer, and yet they're the ones going out on that skinny horse call and needing to ask questions of an owner who's going to be, you know, I'm. I've been an owner for 40 years. I know what. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
No, but so I, education you know, like, is a huge thing. This, what it sounds like is, I assume that there's no association of equine rescues in connection with law enforcement, but it sounds like this needs to be a national program. Well, we certainly are that transparent agency. When we get phone calls and we get requests from other agencies and organizations that want to incorporate pieces or build and, and, and um, expand or even just do it to um, a higher level of integrity and, and things. And that's where, you know, you can look around, you can look at statistics, you can look at the before and after pictures and videos um, on our Facebook or on our website, or you can look at those histories. And to me, those are real tangible examples of our founders' commitment to quality, but it went beyond that. It went into financial integrity. Um, and how they wanted to make sure that every dollar donated was going to the horses. It was, it was, um, a, oh, it was Kathy's mountain she would stand on to say, we want to make sure that there's never a doubt that that person's time or money was not directly impacting the horses. And so our four-star rating on Charity Navigator, our, our, our in, um, transparency for our financials is all out there. Um, and we wanna help other organizations succeed to this degree. Um, and so it's, it's those types of things that don't necessarily get a lot of promotion or at least an opportunity to talk about, but it is super valuable to us as the current staff that we, that Days End be around 50 years from now you have a blueprint for longevity. You have a blueprint Absolutely. for sustainability. And that, yes. I mean, you. what was it that I read or heard? Um, I, I'm going to mess this up because I can't remember the quote, but basically if we, if we don't plan for that type of sustainability, we are yes. not doing the service that we are designed to do. Amen. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, not, I'm trying to remember where that that comes from, but I can't remember right now, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it's, it, it sounds like the, the people that founded Days End were not only caring, but smart business people yeah. who created a model which could be reproduced. Yes. Because you have provided all of the, yes. the, the you know. And they were open, teachable, open-minded. They, they, they weren't afraid to ask for help. They weren't afraid to go to the people who were better educated or smarter or more experienced than them and said, how do we do this? What do we need to do? And, you know, I'm calling myself out, you know, the equestrian community can be a really hard community on each other. It is oh, yeah. not, Without a it doubt. so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm a member. So I'm calling my own self out, but we can be our own worst critics of each other. And, um, my experience because, because of Days End Farm, we, you know, we want to literally a sign that says, check the ego at the gate. Like you, people who come in with an ego don't stay long because, <laughs> because it just isn't a fostered culture here, but, but to be an open-minded asking for help resources, individual in the equestrian world is a bit of an oxymoron sometimes. Um, and we were critical of each other. Um, the, even the uh, equine welfare world is critical of each other. It, 
it's it's society in general, but um, to strive to be transparent, open-minded, teachable, and willing to ask for help and give help when needed is super. You know, I think that the horses have been a part of humans' lives for so long and in so many capacities that um, there's, I mean, it's been in war and camps and, you know, and so there's so, there's this, yes. right? That's yes. almost a part of the, it is part of the culture itself. Um, you know, I do this discipline, you don't. So you, you know, you're, anyway, I can, um, yeah, but, we <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, as a riding instructor of 30 years, I always say, you know, gravity doesn't care what saddle you're in or what color you're Correct. Wearing. Gravity yes. is gravity, you know, and yes. you know, these people go, well, what do you teach? I teach riding, right? It's gravity. <laughs> gravity is the law. You got to deal with it. If you don't deal with it, it's going to get you. Um, so, yes. um, and that's, it's, and things are changing in the industry. So here's, here's my question. Over the time that you have been involved with this in any and all capacities, what is the most significant positive change that you have seen in your lifetime? For me personally or for the organization and the mission? Uh, well, let's do the organization and mission first. Oh dear, having to think that long means that... <laughs> well, in general, I am a thinker before I speak. So I've been doing really well just going off the I was going to say, you've just been rattling along here. <laughs> <laughs> Those... Those meaning, more meaningful types of questions. Um, and honestly, it's, I'm trying to decide if it might even be something I've already said or answered. The biggest impact change that I've seen in the organization, well, it's kind of, it happens every day. So it almost is at risk for being mundane, but it's not. It is the change that happens for the horse, but the human too. We have, we have people living through cancer that come here and don't say a word about it. We've had people really near and dear to us pass away um, that we've lost over the years um, that go through really big life events, all the while grooming and brushing a horse <laughs> that come here for their own healing, for their own escape. Um, <laughs> to be a part of something bigger than themselves, to get outside of their own world, um, to connect to something bigger. Um, I have seen horses meet them on that level the scope and the ability. So gosh, the change, the change is seeing that horse connect to that human and say, in, in ways, if you're really looking at them, you can recognize that horse extending their heart and soul to that human in that moment. Oh my gosh, I, I could cry all day on, <laughs> on those moments. It, and again, it doesn't appear from the outside to be very special. You're just walking through a very busy common area with 40 horses tied to feed lines eating and 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 you have you know the little 10-year-old grooming the 17-hand draft who reaches around and and nuzzles her on the arm and just connects to her in a moment. Um 
of trust, of connection. And you, I mean, to me, I, man, Wendy, that's change. And it happens every day. So it's a bit addictive. <laughs> um, for how it's changed me, I would want to believe that it's made me more compassionate. Um, that it's kept me humble as only horses can do. Um, to see the empowerment too with knowledge and understanding and that pride and that joy um, from an animal control officer who's literally vibrating in fear to approach a horse because he's that afraid and telling and looking me in the eye and go, Diet, I can't, I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't. Um, and then the picture of him hugging the horse <laughs> with a smile that's here to hear and walking away going, I did it, I faced my fear. So, um, you know, again, statistics are out there to show lives saved, but it's horse and human. And um, I don't ever take it for granted. <laughs> you got me crying, which if you, <laughs> I should have said it from the outside. I, I never apologize for being a crier, but I try to give a, um, I try to prepare people because once I really start talking, <laughs> I am, I'm going to get emotional. So hopefully it's not too. Um... No, everybody loves it. <laughs> you know, but I, you're in the right place because you're mm. where you can do the most good with your passion and mm. with your heart. And, and what I, the thing that you said that I think is the most important for someone in your position where I see so many people get trapped is feeling pity and sympathy mm -hmm. rather than seeing the future, the potential, mm -hmm. what can be. And, you know, um, when I, and I, I, I'm just going to, when I teach writing, I look at a student as to what they can do, not what they are doing now. Mm -hmm. And I don't, um, coddle isn't quite the right word, but I don't, join them in the wallowing yeah oh i'm not i am never gonna uh, you know it's like huh. no you just need more information and i'm a feldenkrais i was trained in baltimore actually my training was in baltimore. Oh, okay <laughs> so, uh, i'm a feldenkrais practitioner and feldenkrais is always looking at the possibilities and the op mm. and the and the potential someone's potential whether it's a horse potential or a human potential and when we get caught in looking at the circumstances the present circumstances as what is Instead of the potential of this individual, what can be, we trap them. We trap ourselves, we trap the horse, we trap the situation. It's about looking at what can be. And sometimes what can be is that you're not here anymore, that euthanasia is the best choice because what, what the, the potential isn't healthy enough mm -hmm. to survive. And, you know, Dr. Feldenkrais said that health is the ability to recover. Hmm. And that's what you're doing. If those horses are healthy enough, you are recovering them to be rehomed. But if they're not healthy enough to recover, you're making the best decision for that individual and euthanizing them, which is, I, I'm so okay with it. I think for me, one of the greatest sins in this country, and now I'm really gonna hang out there, 
When we passed the laws to stop horse slaughter in the United States, we failed to take responsibility for the horses and we sent them off to a worse situation, which is Mexico and Canada, where they have to be transported. And once they leave our borders, we have no control as to what happens to them. Instead of doing what Temple Grandin said to do, which was build humane horse slaughter. And you know, when I, I saw it happening, everybody got into that emotional place instead of looking at the responsibility that we have to these animals to make sure we know what's happening. And mm -hmm. she did it for cattle and she could do it for horses. She's an amazing individual. Yes, well, absolutely. I don't know if I'll ever get her on my webinars, but yeah. <laughs> um, but that's the thing is responsibility is the ability to respond. Health is the ability to recover. And when we abdicate the responsibility and to an animal that cannot recover, yes. we have failed to do what we should do to take responsibility. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I have to applaud you for being able to make the really hard decisions with your heart in such an open hmm. place that, you know, I can tell you one want to save everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But we have to be reasonable because the resources are limited. And when you have limited resources, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's not even there's a word. There's a word. Yeah. There's a word that comes to mind when you're talking about it. It's called stewardship. Um, you know, you, you, you have to be a good steward of what has been given to you and, um, what resources are available to you. And you, we've had, We've had conversations over the years about, um, you know, our, the difference of our model from a sanctuary, which is an organization and a place designed to retire of a, a horse until they pass and, you know, they don't have an adoptive home. And, you know, we, we don't have resources um, that would support that. And um, we do have horses that pass away um, in our care in their wait for that adoptive home, but we don't make decisions for an outcome of a horse's life based on the ability to just go out and live the rest of their life in whatever decrepit state or, um, you know, it's it's about being a good steward as well as um, there's that connect, there's that point too, Wendy, that not even just health issues, but emotional mental issues in horses. And, and um, you know, sometimes these horses are mentally broken. We, we haven't, as many examples of those over the years, but man, when they are here and they do come through, those are really memorable um, horses to us. When when they are beyond the ability to rehabilitate mentally, um, and we actually have a very formal process because the hardest part about being a good steward is to remain objective and be, um, you know, I'm an emotional person. So, but emotions. I'm not afraid of them and I certainly um, am comfortable with them, but they are not a part of the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. um, they are a result of it or they can be, you know, <laughs> woven in there, but man, no, we have to be good stewards and, and we have to look at this objectively and we've formalized even our evaluation process of a horse's quality of life and outcome. And the evaluation process is a part of the transition from a horse going through a physical rehabilitation from a body condition score of a one to a five to then going into an evaluation with the trainers as far as the horse's education and knowledge base um, and what 
starting to get a little picture of maybe what they need in an adopter in a new home and what's, you know, is it rideable? Is it not rideable? If it is rideable, what, what skill sets does it have? What's best, um, what's the best home? And then, and then vetting out those adopters as they come in. But there's a part in there where, you know, um, that we get stuck and we just say, goodness gracious, this horse continues to be grade two lame um, you know, in and out of training and, um, you know, we need to evaluate it. We need to sit down when we need to make a plan. So, you know, what's been, what's the history of the horse? What have we been facing with, you know, this horse with, um, physically and behaviorally, what have we invested financially into the horse? What have we invested training wise into the horse and what's the next step? Well, it could be a, a lameness exam. It could be x-rays. It could be shoes. It could just be, let's put some shoes on the horse and see if that makes a difference. But it literally is following these horses through this process. And if we hit a, if we hit a roadblock or we hit a glitch, then let's evaluate what it is that we need to do next. And the euthanasia end of life decision is a formal process where we sit down and we take into account all of those things. Sometimes the answer is on the table, literally, Wendy, on the table in front of us, we know where this is going to end. We know what that end line is going to say, but we still walk through it. We still do the process. We still perform the evaluation. And this is we. <laughs> this is not me. This is, this is equine health manager, head trainer, and assistant trainer. Sometimes we bring in the CEO if it's really a tough decision to make or, or our veterinarians and support staff, but it is a we decision. Um, it is not taken lightly. Um, you know, the exceptions are going to be the catastrophic injuries that sure. comes in, you know, or the colic and, and treatment, but even the colic can say we've tubed him five times. He's, <laughs> you know, we're, you know, how much longer can we keep going in this treatment that we should now make a decision to end his suffering? So, Gracious, a lot of this is just literally living in the moment and walking through it together. But when it comes to the final outcome and and preventing horses from being backburnered or waiting years and years in the field for an adopter, no, we no, this horse deserves and respects someone making some conscious decisions for their care, well-being, and outcome. And if we've done that. Um, you know, you asked me what our typical average length of stay is. 10 months is a remarkable turnaround time. Yeah. Um, body condition score one rehab, you know, standard horse. No, let's just say it's a quarter horse. Well, <laughs> no, um, thoroughbreds, quarter horses, they all rehab at different rates, but, um, it's four to six months just to rehab. Our trainers don't let the horses go until they've had at least 30 days in training so not 10 months is a really quick turnaround. We're really proud of that, but that takes a lot of work. I mean, it's our evaluation process that brings that timetable that low. When I first came back, the average length of stay was two and a half years. Whoa. So you have to be, as an organization, you gotta be intentional. You really gotta be purposeful about making sure that these horses, um, outcome are prioritized. And so, and that it includes, you know, marketing and, you know, helping the adopters see this horse um, and creating, you know, information for them to help make a decision for adoption. But, um, you know, 
the intensive care that goes into a rehabilitation um, is remarkable. The amount of staff hours and time, blood, sweat, and tears that go into a rehabilitating a sick horse. Okay, so we have at Same. least two webinars that we need to do. We need to do the one okay. on, on the what we talked about when you were the, uh, the um, Humane Society person, right? Yes. Okay. But okay. the other that I would really like to do, and maybe the best way is to take a couple cases and, and literally walk through yes. intake to rehome and look at those evaluations. And then possibly a third, which not that I want to dwell on this topic, but we've had two webinars on it, is your end of life. You clearly have a decision-making process. Yes. Um, which, um, you know, we've, we've looked at that a couple of times now. And I think it might be really important, maybe maybe in a few months, to look at that as well. I don't want to make everything sure. too. I don't want. To, <laughs> I try to keep the mix of webinars so that we <laughs> some down and some sideways. Um, but but these are really important topics, and the thing is that they're not readily discussed. Um, you know how to like I did. Uh, I, one of the people that was watching the webinar with Laura sent me their. Um, uh, end of life directive. So I've put that on my website, yes. by the way, anybody can go and download it. It's a free download and it's her steps for end of life, um, uh, 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 directives, just like we do for people, because when you're in the moment, say there's something catastrophic, like a colic, um, we, if we have a plan ahead of time, we can follow the plan. And yes, the other person that I've had on three times now is, is Dr. Rebecca Husted, who is the technical large animal. Um, I know and love her. She, I was, um, I was certified under her. her. Yep. Yeah. She's, she's been here multiple times. Yeah. Love Rebecca. Yep. Oh, we should get the two of you together. Uh, <laughs> she's fabulous. She's yes. fabulous. And yes, um, I just love having her as a guest. I'm trying to think of another topic for her just so I can talk to her again. Right. <laughs> but she's so sharp. And I have her, um, her uh, homework sheet also on my website is a free downloadable item. Okay. Um, but I just think that, you know, the thing is, the, what did you say? It was, it's planning and opportunity and opportunity sometimes may be something tragic, but if we have the planning in place, we have an action plan. It doesn't have to be the devastation or, or yes. you know, trauma because, yes. because that leaves humans in trouble also. Um, and so, you know, talking about these topics is, like I said, it's not always, uh, you know, joyous, but it's important. And that's one of my purposes here with the webinars is to bring people information that's important. Well, um, another full circle moment too for you is oftentimes the, the whys behind the horses come to us is because the inability of an owner to do just that or have that. Uh, they're, they're not capable, prepared or able to make that end of life decision. And therefore the horse suffers and languishes. I mean, it, it happens in shelters with dogs and cats. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's humanity at its heart, struggling with the letting go and making that rational decision. And I can tell you the love of my life is my horse river. I adopted him from day's end. I can manage a herd of a hundred horses in a rational manner, but I cannot manage my horse. <laughs> no, I totally get I it. Can't do it. I can't do it. I'm I, sorry, I, it goes I, right I, out the door. 
I cannot tell you how well I get this. I can go with everybody else's verse and it's totally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And when no, it it's, I preach to the choir, I'm like, I'm preaching to myself and oh my gosh, you know, it really, uh, so it just, again, I like to say me too, as much as as we can. How do I relate to you? How can I connect to you? How how can I appreciate where you are? And it's me too, me too. No, those decisions are hard. No one, no, no one wants to have these conversations. We don't, it's not pleasant, it's not pretty. Um, you know, I'll cry just thinking about the day that river passes, but it, it has to happen, we, you know. Yeah, they're gonna, we're gonna outlive them 99% of the time. And you know, yeah. uh, uh, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say about this and then, but um, my mom came to live with me in her early nineties. And it was so interesting because I sat down one day while she was still here and I made, I wrote down all of her bank account numbers, her insurance company numbers, mm. her, uh, you know, all the social, every, I put it on a sheet and it was in my computer. And when my mom passed, I pulled open that document and I blew my mind at how prepared I was to make those things so easy that you had, like, it took me three years to get all the way through and there was no probate, right? But I had the numbers available so that I could make the calls. Good for you. And so this type of thing, this Mm -hmm. preparedness, when we, when we are faced with the inevitable, Mm -hmm. we can still function and do the things we need to do and have the opportunity to grieve. Yes. And good for you. Yes. Yeah. I, it was so weird because I just did it. And then I didn't even remember where it was. And, but there <laughs> it was. And it, it certainly made things much easier. So, so, uh, Dillette, we, we need to go, but I'm going to have Alex contact you to book at least two webinars. And you can tell her which ones you want to do in what order. Okay. Um, and, but the other thing I'm thinking now is, I'm really thinking that instead of having Felicitas come and show you Surefoot, I'm wondering if I should do it because you're not that far away. Oh, I, I, that's, mm, you want to know how I feel about that? Yes. I think I know. At the beginning, I'm <laughs> like, have you been here? No. Well, what do I need to do? Let's. <laughs> yeah, because I really, I really want, she's working with performance horses and your population. Mm. We're going to look at how to work this in with your population a little bit differently, I think. Not that she couldn't do it, but. I really think I want to make a trip. That would be wonderful. Would love to have you. Okay, great. I'll be in touch. Okay, very good. Thanks everybody for joining us. And just remember, uh, we have another webinar coming up this week and I, I've totally forgotten what it is getting talked. <laughs> <laughs> just go check the website and sign up and we'll see you later. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much. <laughs>